0: Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache, but it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in, the software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, CTC focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get an exclusive 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout.
1: Hey, everybody. I'm Samuel Burke, Editor-in-Chief at Real Vision. Welcome back to Three Ideas. It's Education Month here at Real Vision. And so we have a very special week this week looking at the real foundations of investing through the macro lens. And so this is a special edition of Three Ideas. We're going to focus... The three ideas around those macro pillars. We're going to have a tutorial on investing in uranium and a special look at investing in sovereign debt. To do that, I have Nick Lawson, the CEO of Ocean Wall, with me. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks for having me, Simon. It's a, you have a very interesting background. CEO of this company, of course, but also decades with Deutsche, where you still continue. We're going to have viewer questions. If you're watching this show live, Nick will answer them as we go through the ideas. Uh, just remember that this is not advice and that's not just legal mumbo jumbo. This is really important. Nick's pockets are probably a lot deeper than a lot of ours and his time horizon quite different. So these are starting points or suggestions that may not match exactly uh, what your pockets have or where you want to go. And for full transparency, Nick is invested in every single one of the ideas we're going to go through today. You could either see that as he's putting his money where his mouth is, or he really wants these investments to do well, or both—probably both. But before we get into the three ideas, Nick, I have to say I'm actually as excited as I am about hearing uh, about your macro outlook, not just because they under, uh, underpin the the three pillars. Uh, of the three ideas you're going to have today, because you have a quite fascinating, multifaceted look at the world. So, what is your global macro outlook right now, Nick?
2: Uh, well, I feel I don't think I've ever been as excited about the opportunities for Alpha than I do now at this stage of my career. And I started in the markets back in the early 90s. I think we're, we're a sort of constellation of factors. We have 40 elections taking place um, globally this year, maybe more. Now, these are consequential elections for the West. We have a situation now where, in a lot of countries, obviously, particularly in the US uh, and probably in the UK, you could say as well, you're voting against the uh, existing order. And this is a time in life where public sentiment to government policy is probably at best that it's unproductive and, and probably in the norm now that it's the, the perception of corruption, that something is wrong. And I think what's happened has been, and I think from an economic perspective, why this happens, you've had almost this sort of subterraneous effect for the last sort of 12 years since the uh, Draghi, whatever it takes, bazooka in 2012 of zero interest rates. Obviously, the Fed was was interested in that as well. And I think that zero interest rates has meant that you had, for that period, a sort of dichotomy between, and it's almost like a, a Marxist dichotomy, between the owners of assets and the renters of assets. Because in a zero rate environment, every asset went up. In those that obviously that didn't own assets became obviously disadvantaged from that. And now we have this sort of like um, this sort of protracted um, uh, cumulative effect of this distortion, which has now led us in 2024 to a situation now where people are feeling that they want to change regardless of what that change is. Now I talk about why this environment is so rich. So I think one of the things that's happened now has been, with the distrust that exists within the public, people have turned to the internet, they've turned to um, uh, different um, uh, sort of like sources of, of, of news, such as, you know, Twitter, or X, you know, yourselves. And I believe that information now is in a completely different forum than where it was before. And I think with interest rates at 5%, what we've done is we've knocked out two things. We've knocked out that carry trade. So you can't just make money from anything you do at 0% uh, interest rates. And secondly, you've knocked out zombie companies. So unproductive companies do not work. So I think the, the paradigm we face now is we've got so much going on, so many sort of exogenous events in the market. And I think at the same time, we're asking more from the companies that we invest in. You've got to be able to beat not just your cost of capital, but probably something more than that to generate return. Which means that only good companies are surviving, which is probably why I'm so um, excited by it. I think, you know, the, the, the distortion for me is a positive one that we've moved to to alpha away from just clinging to beta, just to just to the market. So that would be my sort of, in a nutshell, my macro thesis.
1: But but it sounds like a bit of a contradiction to me because on the one hand you're saying, well the market isn't nearly as awash with capital as it was. We're going to get rid of all these zombie companies that have, been, that have been out here because of all this capital. They're going to be winners. It sounds like a lot of losers. So why are you excited about that? Isn't there going to be a lot of suffering? Hasn't there already been a lot of suffering? Maybe we've only just seen a little bit of that suffering start. So what makes you so excited?
2: I think it's a uh, sort of very simple sort of precept or, or sort of like axiom of sorting the wheat from the chaff. I think what we're doing now is we're really going to be in a position where we're going to reward high-quality situations in companies. And I think what it requires is something that probably hasn't been in the market for some time, which is very, very almost forensic due diligence. Um, I was schooled uh, from, you know, falling over company accounts when I started in the markets. I had to start as an analyst before I could move into any other area. Um, the, the discipline of uh, balance sheet was one that was extolled to us from throughout my time at the Deutsche Bank I think what's happened has been is that we've in some way become slightly lazy in the way in which we approach things because you know we, it's sort of by the dip all things go up and I think a lot of what happened recently which has been obviously more in the film Done Money is the sort of meme stock you know the idea of the greater fool that I'll buy something knowing that the greater fool will pay me a premium for that um, I did a, a speech at a school recently, a big English public school, and um, everyone wanted to talk about crypto. And when I said to someone, How would I value crypto? no one quite knew. And it all came down to the greater fool of what premium someone else would pay rather than it's a means for exchange, it's a store of wealth, it's a, a method of value. It, it, it would be lost sight of that. Now, I'm not in any way, because I know, you know crypto is obviously it's an incredibly important role. But I think what this now means is a return to value investing. And I think, you know, one of the things we talk about, as you alluded to, and this is between uranium, is it's in the middle of almost geopolitical chaos that is going on at the moment. You know, the, 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 the Russian-Ukraine war, the bifurcation of the West and the East. And so it requires a greater bit of uh, due diligence. And there's that very famous quote which often gets um, uh, you know used a lot, which is the uh, Drucker-Miller quote from Soros, which is, When you have conviction, you go for the jugular. And I think when one gets conviction, it's on the basis of finding something where one has really analyzed the risk reward and understands the asymmetry of that risk reward and is happy to put that bet on. And I'm not talking here about, you know, you buy something and it goes up, then it goes down the following day and you sell it. I'm talking about term investing. I'm talking about never having to uh, be, uh, I mean, always, I always say to anyone who asks me for stock recommendation, anyone, Always invest what you can afford to lose, which doesn't always make sense um, because obviously we all can lose money. But I feel that you know it always should be something where someone looks at duration and term. And at Ocean Wall, we have this sort of like I've sort of built into it. So I spent time as a as a as a partner at a hedge fund doing special situations is value plus catalyst. What is the value I'm looking for? Am I looking at it for uh, from sp- uh, the perspective of is it a cheap metric relative to its peer group? And then from that, what is going to change? That what's going to re-rate that? And it can be a hard thing, it could be a call for action. It could be a soft thing. It could be you know just the idea that you know the market's perception of the underlying product is going to change. And I always look every, everything is look, is through that prism of value plus catalyst.
0: Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: Another day
1: is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSC. You're talking about conviction. So before we get into the the ideas, the three ideas that you have around, uh, two of which are around uranium, I really want to get uh, your underpinnings for how you see the uranium market? I mean, really a tutorial, a 101, talk yeah. to us. For, for those folks who are coming in for Education Month this month on the platform at Real Vision, don't know anything about it, what's your starting point for helping yeah. people to understand this market?
2: So, so my, my, uh, my my understanding, my tutorage that I got was almost a baptism fire because I was running Special Sits of Deutsche in 2006. And Special Situations is a, is a suitably nebulous term for anything that, <laughs> sits outside of normal equity and normal credit. and this, uh, We had IPO'd a, a uranium business called Nuffcore. It was £10 million in weight of uranium uh, stored in a cave in the south of France, which was Nuffcore. And no one understood the dynamics of uranium. No one understood really which is it. So it came onto my book. And this was in July of 2006. Uh, and then in, in October of 2006, uh, a mine was flooded that belonged to Cameco from Cigar Lake. And the mine wasn't even online. Uh, and yet the uranium price went from $20 a pound to $143 a pound within six months. And for me, I couldn't understand the convexity of something that could go from one state of affairs to another in such a short space of time. With an event that was taking place and we began to start analysing uranium. At the time, there was a £72 million in weight surplus in the world market. And it comes back down to and I realised, you know, it came back down to a very very simple sort of comparison. And so to give you an example, it's it's you no, know, Samuel, What price would you pay for this bottle of water today, at this moment? Probably two pounds. What price would you pay in one week's time if you had had no water? Probably everything you own, and you probably would kill people to achieve that water as well. And that is price and elasticity in its purest form for a human. For a nuclear power plant, it's almost identical when it comes to uranium. There is nothing else anyone can put into a nuclear power plant to create nuclear fission than uranium. And that's an enriched form of uranium, which we'll come on and talk about as well. And so what happened in 2006, Price, having that parabolic move, was the fact that the power stations, they had to have it. They had to have it. And so they would pay any price for that. Now, the input cost for uranium in a nuclear power plant is between 3 and 5%. So really, you know, whether it's $20 or $100 or $300, it's pretty still pretty much the margin. But for a fuel buyer, the issue here is, is you get fired if you do not secure the pounds. Now, for um, the US, where one in five households gets their uh, base load power from nuclear, the implication of not having nuclear power or not having uranium in your power station is you turn that power station off, and it costs a million a day while it's dormant, and it costs and it takes in terms of time between eighteen months and two years to come back online. But what does that mean in the meantime? Suddenly, you know, you have a situation where you've knocked out your baseload provider. Is it civil unrest? I don't know. I mean, because we haven't modeled that, and so this event happened, and um, so just to keep keep going with the one hundred and one like all good investment banks in the 2000s, we got greedy and we started to structure derivative trades around uranium and we had a a, a very brilliant guy build a a, a derivative on Comex Um, and and sure enough, by the time that the uh, Lehman and GFC came, it knocked out all leverage and, you know, it got knocked out. And I'm not sure, Sam, the chart up on the screen. So, so, because it all is all part of the one-on-one. So if you look at that move where... um, Uranium in 2006, that's the spike I was alluding to, where it went from $20 to $143. And then it came back down with GFC. And then it really came back down with the March um, tsunami that hit the Daiichi reactor in Fukushima, in the prefecture of Fukushima in Japan. Although no one died of uh, radiation, the 160 people that did die died because of a 100 foot wave hit the reactor it actually hit a cooling station which knocked out the kill switches which allowed the reactor then did melt down but there was the movement of people but what it did do to the japanese and it also did to the germans as well was made them realize that, that nuclear is sort of what they always thought it was it's death it's chernobyl and and people always conflate nuclear weaponry and nuclear energy and i can come on and talk about why those are so different but what happened with Fukushima was we went into this secular bear market. Now, I just want to, on the 101, talk about nuclear um, energy and nuclear weaponry. But I think yeah. this is the key thing. What happens is, um, with uranium, it's mined as an ore, and it comes out of the ground, and it's known as yellow cake, uh, because it has a goldish hue. And in it, you have the presence of the isotope U235. And what you're trying to do uh, uh, throughout the whole process of uranium enrichment is to effectively Get, increase the presence of U235, which is the, the fissile isotope. Um, but um, to do that, you've got to convert it into a gas and then you enrich it into a centrifuge and then you have to fabricate it. And it takes a very, very long time to do. And what we'll talk about today is mainly on the mining side, but the whole chain is not only takes two years to do, it's also very, very fragile. So what you'll happen and what you'll see is the last point before I go sure the, the next question is what you'll find with uranium is because of what it is. Nothing happens quickly. Everything's glacial because it is a radioactive material that can only actually be worked on by six countries in this world. as It stands at the moment. Um, And so because of its inherent qualities, to get it to weapons grade, it's about 90 percent U235. Put it into a a pressurized water reactor, a a standard nuclear power plant, it's about 5 percent U235. And to put it into the next gen SMR small modular reactors, it's about nineteen point seven five percent, which sounds an exact amount, and it is. So what you have is they're two very very different things. But in twenty eleven, the world suddenly went. It's as we thought it was, and so suddenly the world was awash with uranium. Well, and just to
1: convert that chart that you just were showing into words, I mean, essentially, Nick, the price of uranium has remained below the cost of production almost you know, ever since then, and you reference Germany because you know Germany was the, the best known case. People say, well, we don't want it to happen. What happened in Japan happened to us. And so cut. So how do you bring that to where we are today? For someone who's just looking at uranium, they, they think nuclear power, of course, they know what happened in 2011 with the Japanese tsunami. They know how Germany reacted. How, how do you reset the stage in 2024?
2: So, so you had a a huge supply of uranium on the market. Not only were the Japanese sellers, the uh, Germans were, but also you had a situation um, where, after the Cold War in Russia uh, had ended in 1993, there was a treaty between the U.S. and the and and the Russians called the Megatons to Megawatts program, which was to take enriched Russian weapons-grade fuel and de-enrich it and put it into U.S. reactors by de-enriching, enriching it. And so there was a surfeit, whether it was de-enriched weapons and whether it was Japanese and German mobile, and there was a surfeit of pounds. And as you quite rightly say, the price got to below $20 a pound. The, the break-even cost of US mines was around 50 it's, it's actually a lot more than that now. It's around $90 a pound. And so what happened was the whole industry moved on. So just to give you a quick example of that, in 2018 um, in Wyoming, um, uh, there were 20 mines that had uh, 32 rigs on them drilling for uh, uranium, you, you extract Uranium for both hard rock and also you to do something called in situ recovery, which is where you mix sulfuric acid and you suck it up. But these rigs in the US, it all moved. So there were 20 mines, 32 rigs in 2018. Today, there's two. It's all moved to oil. Because of course it has, because, you know, it's efficient market. And so it goes to where the profits are. So not only do we have this situation where we've had this um, sort of collapse in pricing, but the mines have shuttered. So back when I was talking about the NuffPort transaction, the global market cap of uranium was about $150 billion. Today, it's around 60. You know, So we're still a very much smaller product because that's buying some sharp. There's also been consolidation that's taken place. But then something happened. And that thing that happened for me was when I was at a hedge fund in 2018, which was the IPO of a company called Yellow Pay, who effectively had the singular sort of modus operandi of buying and storing uranium in its all formats uh, in a place in Ontario called Port Hope, which is owned by Camaco. And they ip on the London Stock Exchange. And I can tell you, Samuel, when I went to the meetings there, you could have them in a phone box. No one was there. No one was interested. Because why would they? You know, we'd been in a secular bear market for 10, 11 years. But then something began to change. And it changed with the idea that this inventory was being removed from the market. So fuel buyers who had been spoilt every time they issued an RFP, every time they went into the market to buy, there was always a million willing sellers. Suddenly, the inventory was being removed. And what we're now seeing in the big move we've had recently is a function of open brackets, the fact there is no uranium, closed brackets. And there's lots of different elements for that. And I think probably one of the biggest has been the, um, and I used the word bifurcation earlier, the fact that the West and the East are beginning to split. And I think it's along the lines of the fact of, obviously, the war, but the fact that China has a huge nuclear programme Russia, uh, there's a, a, we talked, you know, I can talk more about this, but there's a a book which talks about the Putinization of uranium. Putin has seen this coming for a very, very long time and has been buying uranium assets. So he obviously wants to secure those assets against the West. And that megatons to megawatts program has meant that Russia now is responsible for close to 50% of global conversion enrichment. And as you know, in the House at the moment, they're looking to ban Russian imports of enriched uranium. Which is a little bit like turkeys voting for Christmas, but I can talk more about that. But the key thing, the OPEC Plus, all of of, of, um, of, of uh, uranium producers is Kazakhstan, and inside that is a company called Kazatomprom, and uh, they are responsible for forty two percent of global production of uranium. So that makes them OPEC Plus in their own right. Now Kazakhstan, which I've visited seven times, twice this summer, sits to the south of Russia, uh, sits to the west of China. It's to the north of the Kyrgyzstan, the Uzbekostans, the Dagestans, the Pakistan. And then to uh, its west, it has, it has the uh, Caspian Sea, the Black Sea, and the Bosphorus. Now, traditionally, pre the war, uranium would be shipped out to the west through Russia, out through St. Petersburg and the Baltic. That's gone. That's gone. You know, whether it's through self-sanctioning or through um, uh, the countries themselves not doing it, you know, we can no longer ship pounds out through, uh, the, uh, through Russia. So how does it travel? Well, Uranium now has to go through this torturous route that takes it through the Caspian, to Azerbaijan, through Georgia, through the Black Sea, and then round through the Bosphorus. So the cost inflation is huge in moving those pounds. But then on the border of Kazakhstan is China, who have built a giant bonded warehouse called Alashanku, who will buy whatever the Kazakhs have to sell. Now, if you get paid cash on delivery, why wouldn't you just sell it to the Chinese, then have to, to deal with the Azerbaijanis who are at war with the Armenians, hate the French, you know, and, and, and going through routes. So I talk about this past seven materials, a radioactive material. You can't just change that. You can't just ship it through countries that don't have a nuclear policy. So everything's conspired at once. The ending of the um, uh, inventory. The, uh, the 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 bifurcation of the uh, of the West and the East, coupled with the most important thing that didn't happen in two thousand six, which is the nuclear renaissance. You know, back in two thousand six, we didn't really have iPhones, we didn't have electric cars. Uh, now, obviously, we have to have uh, if we're to achieve our net carbon, our, our net zero goals as part of COP twenty eight and every other COP before that. You know, we can only rely on nuclear. We you know with intermittent power. The wind don't blow and the sun don't shine; they don't work. And so we're now in the situation where we cannot afford not to be investing in nuclear. So every country now has an aggressive, pretty much an aggressive nuclear policy to build out, coupled with what Bill Gates and Terra Power are doing, and many other companies, um, uh, Sam Altman uh, as well, looking at small modular reactors. Small modular reactors uh, effectively are, as they say, modular, come in kit format. You can assemble them quite quickly. I can put together one. Uh, 35 megawatt one, which would be able to power Leeds, you know, just shy of a million people. So we have this nuclear renaissance coupled with advancements in technology. As well as that, there is the, the political backdrop, which is there's now bipartisan support for nuclear. Back in 06, you know, it was, you know, nuclear was, oh my God, this is terrible. Now we have in the Senate bipartisan support. We have Brett Thunberg talking about how good nuclear is. There's been a, a vote fast by the Germans. You know, you see how the UK government, Claire Cortino's announcement, um, the government minister two weeks ago about the rollout and support for uranium enrichment. And so everything's conspired at once to create this, this huge, this huge swell event. And so the alacrity of the move we've seen in the last five years, so we've gone from $20, we're now at $106. I think we'll probably go to $250. Why not 1000 Because it doesn't matter. Now, just one last comment before your question is, I cannot think in my career of any commodity that's gone from $20 to $106. It's gone up by more than five times in the course of a couple of years where supply hasn't come online. Supply is actually being cut. You know, you had Kazatomprom Warn. We may have Cameco Warn. The two biggest producers in the world look like they can't, I don't know this, but they might be buyers themselves. It wouldn't surprise me.
0: We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
1: So to simplify all of that, the world's kind of being pulled apart. Different regions looking for different energy, and supply is low, and demand is going up. I think that's uh, a perfect way to segue. Absolutely.
2: absolutely right. So into, you, you, you did a lot better than I did, Sam, in a short space of time.
1: Well, let's let's jump in into your first idea, and that's the Thysium uh, Uranium Corp. Yeah. Uh, FCU on the Toronto Stock Exchange, is a mineral expi- exploration company headquartered in Canada. And we'll bring up the first chart so that folks can take a look at this. I think it goes back from 2019
2: until today. And why this company? So I, uh, I got to know Fission um, about three years ago. Um, the CEO, Ross McElroy, is voted Miner of the Year multiple times within, in Canada. Uh, The assets are world class. Uh, the jurisdiction of Canada means that when we have a world now which is going to uh, split between west and east, here we have the most favorable jurisdiction in the world in North America, where the Americans will be able to buy them. And what you'll find in my uranium picks is they all have a North American flavor. I want to be, I want to be long North American uranium. I don't want the risk of, of owning something in a in a uh, that's another territory that isn't party to, 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 to what Western ideals and philosophy is. Now, Fission had discovered uranium in 2011. Um, they effectively were flying um, planes, low-level planes over the Athabasca Basin in Saskatchewan. Now, Saskatchewan is, is vast. The Athabasca Basin itself is twice the size of England, uh, full of the uh, local indigenous First Nation people, so there has to be a lot of respect for those. Vision do that. They work very, very closely with the indigenous um, First Nation people who live there. Um, Secondly, the fact is to fly these Geiger counter um, uh, planes very low over the forestry is to effectively identify boulders. I say boulders, they're about that size. that have radioactive material. When they find those boulders with the Geiger counter, they then look to triangulate from the thawing of the last ice age 10,000 years ago where those boulders have come from. And then what they look to try and do is vector in and find out where those uranium seams are. And Uranium is a little bit like a, a sort of like a, a very sort of like different shaped pearl necklace. There's non-conformity, And what I mean by that is you get big lumps, you get small lumps. But really, um, uh, a quarter of the year supply of uranium in its ore format is something the size of a, what do I say, a sort of five, six story townhouse. So you have to be absolutely precise. And where they're operating is obviously vast. And what they've managed to do is be able to find an area called Paterson Lake North. So there's two radioactive seams that run through the Athabasca Basin. The one on the right is run by Cameco, which is really an acronym for Canadian mining company. Um, and uh, they're, they they're Cigar Lake MacArthur River, and River you and know, they are coming to an end of their natural life. But where they have in Paterson Lake North, they have amazing um, uh, resource and reserves. And we think they could probably add about 135 million pounds of uranium. Now you value that at 106 with the, the prices at the moment, and that's suddenly an, an EBIT number of a uh, uh, 1.4 billion, 1.34 billion dollars against a market cap of 1.2. So suddenly, just it's, it's less than one times EBIT on its available reserves that are there at the moment, and obviously it's still drilling and looking for for pounds. And I just feel at the moment, you know, I think there are. Uh, a lot of people that will appear, Samuel, on your show and on Real Vision and on X, who will purport to be uranium geologists. These guys have been there since 2011. They've worked with the communities. They won't start mining the pounds, and it shows you how glacial everything in uranium is, until 2029. Nothing moves quickly. So anyone who comes to you with a get-rich-quick scheme, like, I've, I've found pounds, we've pegged the pounds, whatever, it ain't true. And I think, what well, for me, the reason I selected fission was because the concept of fiduciary responsibility both to the local people, their miners, but also to shareholders as well. And you can see from the share price chart, um, you know, they have returned for shareholders. I think there's a lot more to do, to, to, to a lot, lot more to go from here as well. And I can't think of better custodians, and I own the shares.
1: Well, if we go back to that chart, I think a lot of folks looking at that would say, it looks like it's it's had its good run right now. Is this the right time to get in? What's... what? Can you answer that question? And what's your time horizon? Yeah, I
2: mean, it, 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 it comes back to the point I made is I cannot think of any commodity that's gone up five times and no supply has gone online. We're dealing with something which is, is doesn't have the normal supply-demand parameters, like the price goes up, supply comes online, find an alternative. You know, we wrote a report before Christmas, which is available on our website, oceanwall.com, looking at the risks to uranium. And, and probably the biggest risk is fusion. So fusion against fission is the conjoining of the, of the uh, isotope. Uh, two, three, five, and uh, also hydrogen isotopes rather than the uh, uranium isotopes. But the commercial application is not until 2040. You know, it's very difficult. I mean, people talk about, oh, we can get seaweed extraction. Well, that doesn't start until $200 a pound. There's nothing out there that disrupts this. Now, you know, you'll probably at the end, I won't, you know, go to the pub and say, what keeps me up at night? There are things that keep me up at night about the trade. But I certainly feel at the moment, when I've got a global market cap, Uranium and uranium is not just miners, it's sequesters, I have people who buy and store it like Yellowcake and Sprot. You have producers like Hammercoat. uh, You have uh, these Explorer um, producers like Fission. And then you have the Enrichers. It's $60 billion global market cap. That's one tenth of the EV of ExxonMobil. This is tiny. And the, and the apex predator in this trade is the hedge fund. Because when the hedge funds get involved in this, this thing will absolutely rule. And the reason I say that is back in 2006/7, although it was the, the fuel buyers who wanted the fuel for their power reactors, it was the hedge funds that got in front of them. And it won't take much to move this because it's such a tiny market now. Now we've already started to see rule like disclosures from some hedge funds owning this and certain names. I actually think this will begin to happen. And that comes back to that point, Samuel as well, about alpha. You know, this is, this is pure unconstrained alpha that sits within this trade at the moment. And I think what you will begin to see is people who probably said, Oh, it's too small for me. I think, Well, hold on. You know, and you'll hear this in Mayfair, you know, and uh, out in Connecticut. A lot of people that were saying, You know, hedge, uh, uranium was going to make my year. You know, there's a Bloomberg article, I won't name who the hedge fund is. They, a good year last year, they see this and oil as their as the stocks for the year. And, and it won't take long until you begin to get that traction. And it doesn't have the liquidity for the hedge funds to fully manifest the trade, which is why it's so exciting for your viewers, listeners, for high net worths, for small family offices uh, uh, and retail investors. But you have to be patient. You can't allow yourself the, 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 the vicissitudes of the market to disrupt the way in which you're looking at this.
1: You're very convincing and you clearly know the market and the players here, but you said there's nothing that could stop this. So what could stop this?
2: Um, so what could stop this is there's something so terrible that it derails the nuclear renaissance. Uh, and that, for me, is a horrific nuclear accident. And to tell you the truth, it won't really matter if that happens anyway, because I think we'll have bigger things to worry about. Um, now, to derail the nuclear renaissance means that you have to effectively talk about no new bills and potential shuttering. So it will have to be a safety flaw that so, so almost becomes endemic with Certain type of reactor, but I think what you find now with the post uh, Fukushima and Chernobyl is how safe and secure these are. And I think it's very interesting with the bombing of uh, the Zaporijah um, uh, pressurized water reactor in Ukraine and started the, start the Ukraine Russian invasion. You remember it was being hit, and everyone's like, oh, And what people were doing is they like, "Oh no, if you if you if you drop a bomb on a nuclear power station, it's a double nuclear." Accident. Well, that's not true because. One is fuel rods uh, enriched to 5% U235. The other one is nuclear bomb, which we talked about earlier, is 90%. But what happened was Afaria, which is the largest pressurized we- uh, reactor in Europe, stood up. And there's now features where you can whip out the fuel rods in nanoseconds from these reactors. There's kill switches everywhere. So they're very, very safe. it would be something like a it'd be something so horrific that to tell you the truth, Samuel, I don't think we I think money would be the least of our problems. I cannot see anything at the moment derailing this trade, other than something that. Oh, there is one thing: governments. You know, I think governments could suddenly go right. Enough's enough. We've had enough of this. We are going to start sequestering uranium back off um, companies themselves, but they'd have to pay market price. But it'd be some some form of nationalisation. I think would be the thing that would
1: I, mean, I was going to say I, it would be another tsunami. It sounds like, but even in your mind, you're saying that you think the safety procedures have improved so much that even that uh, doesn't deter you.
2: But the other thing as well is nuclear power stations have forty-year minimum or forty to sixty-year plant lives. So even if a terror accident happens, you've got to carry on fueling the existing reactors. Now, existing demand for for uranium is 190 million pounds a year. Supply last year was 135. And that's been going on for years and years because of the break-even costs are so low, mines have shuttered. So you've got this cumulative gap between supply and demand, exacerbated now by Sprott buying uranium, Yellowcake buying uranium, and hedge funds in the market buying uranium and taking it away from the power from the power companies. Now, I think what will happen next is you'll start seeing the nuclear power companies who are their RFPs are going unanswered. Suddenly going right, what price do I pay? You know, they're 106 on the screen, I'll pay 130 for pounds. And once you see that print, then the panic takes in. And I'm on record in the Financial Times last year of saying 250. And, you know, people, you know, not not laugh, but they thought that's, that's quite punchy. And I feel a little bit like, on the sort of classical analogy, like Cassandra on the walls of Troy. I can see the Greek ships, I'm telling everyone the Greek ships are coming, but people are only just beginning to listen. And as I say, from the first meetings we had four or five years ago, um with sort of yellow cake you could get everyone into a phone box now people are really listening but again i don't think people understand the um the asymmetry of this trade that it will move and it will move in big gap notes I'm, I'm just
1: smiling because i just love the uh, greek imagery that you uh, you bring into it and just to
2: put a bow on exactly that's, 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 right, that's, a, that's the, 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 the 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 probably upside of a public school education uh,
1: no no <laughs> no drama no no greek drama there uh, Dean Myers, uh, just asking from the Real Vision community, next target price for fission and timeline for uranium trade overall? I mean, just to build on what you told the
2: FT. Yeah, so first I think, fission. I, 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 think we've got, I think we've got a very long time for this. I think we can't bring supply back online. So in the US, we've been modeling mines coming back online, and they will do, but we've probably got about 9 million pounds of uranium coming back online within the next two to three years. And remember, global demand is 190 million. You know, the Kazakhs have already started giving an idea that next month they'll warn on production. You know, they do 30 million is their nameplate number. Um, I think what you'll probably see this going on for some time, but it's, it's going to have its movements. It will have its movements, but I think if you can stay in this trade, as long as nothing terrible happens, I think this could be a five-year bull market. Okay. And then, so in these specific... vision? Look, you know, it's a little bit how long a piece of string because... If you believe that uranium goes to 250, then you're saying that the EBITDA number for fission is two and a half billion, which means that the valuation of the company is probably, if you say it should be on five times EBIT, $10, and it's a dollar now. I don't know. I just don't know because I'm not looking at things from a company specific target price. I'm looking at things from the uranium top down view and saying, what's the best way to manifest that trade? Now, there are other names. I love enrichment. Um, Maybe if you invite me back on the show, I can do enrichment in a couple of months' time. But for this call, I think the the most exciting thing for for Western listeners is North American pounds in the ground. And I don't know whether that segues us nicely into the next uh, trade idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So your second idea is the Uranium Energy Corp. That's UEC on uh, NICE. It's a US-based production and exploration company operating... Uh, North America's newest uranium mine. Uh, We'll bring that chart up, and it's the same question. Why this company?
2: So, um, again, it comes down to best-in-class management. So, Anir Nani, who set the business up over 20 years ago and stayed at the helm. um, They're the largest, uh, they're the most liquid pure play in the uranium sector. The assets are North American. Um, they're permitted, so they can start producing in Texas and Wyoming. The resource base is around 226 million pounds, so you can look at that and times that by the whatever uranium price it is on, on that day. They've held themselves, and this is the, the the beauty about this: they operate 100% unhedged strategy. They sit there with unhedged pounds; they can sell when anyone comes along, and they're not locked in at any price because lots of um, producers have been locked into term contracts because of uncertainty in uranium price, here. and and here we have a company which has no debt, licensed assets already to come online in an unhedged portfolio. So for me, this stock, and I know you'll look at it, and back in 2020 they got down to 60 cents, and they're trading at eight dollars plus now. But again, this is a function of looking at implied pounds and times it by the uranium price. I think on any metric like that it begins to look cheap. And particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act, with the Nuclear Strategic Reserve Fund, which is only buying US pounds, which UEC have already sold into, they they, they paid a 20% premium last year, which was probably the best trade in the world because they paid, I think they paid $60 and the, the price at the time on the screen was 40 something. Now, in hindsight, it looks at the time expensive. In hindsight, what a trade with uranium at 106. They have the ability to do that. You know, um, Scott Melby, who's the vice president there, sits as the chair of the Uranium Producers of uh, America. You know, World-class operatives, world-class assets, 100% unhedged. So this, for me, is the purest play on uranium in the market. Now, a lot of people say to me, but you should not own Cameco. Cameco's a big company, but Cameco did the Westinghouse deal. They're moving more into other areas, of the nuclear fuel chain, or, or, away from the the pounds themselves.
1: Hey, so you answered the right now, but again, specifics. Any targets that you or Ocean Wall have for and as a
2: house? As a house, we don't normally have targets on stocks. What we do, as I say, we have the thesis, and then we look how to manifest that. You know, where could this go to? You know, again, if 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 the uranium price doubles from here this year, twenty dollars. I mean. I don't know. I mean, I'm never going to come on a show and talk about M and A in terms of oh, it's an M and A target. But I've got to say, these are amazing assets. And what would make you change your mind?
1: I have a feeling you might copy and paste your answer from the previous yeah, idea, but uh, I, prove I, I, me I, I wrong. Think,
2: I think probably what would I what I'd do is if if if. I mean, it's interesting because you think about Trump coming to power next year or this year, but january and how that would affect things well trump is very pro nuclear and very pro domestic uranium it, it, it was actually him that reenacted the cold War policy of the u.s nuclear strategic reserve fund i think it'd probably be if amir the ceo and scott left uh, there was a big change at the board at a board mm-hmm. level i mean we i'm so, i'm such big balls of them as management and how they steered it so it'd probably have to be a change of management but Really, I mean, Amir's been there since day one. He set it up. You know, I, 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 I think I don't consider having it, but it'd probably be something like change management and maybe change my
1: thesis. Echoes of what Larry Lapard told us when he was on Three Ideas talking about gold mining, also in you know, North America. So, very, very similar. Are you operating just on a side note under the assumption that Trump will become, will win, not the nomination? Yes. Which is yeah, I are you operating? That a he'll be president.
2: Well, we get a lot of information from people that you know they're going to let him fall over with the you know the various indictments that are against him, um, but I feel at the moment that um, a lot of people surprise me sort of where I seem to be see to be quite moderate liberal friends who feel that a strong man is needed. and it probably comes back to that point that we talked about at the top of the show, which was around trusting governments, and I think you know whatever you say about him, he does. You know, people don't like him, but does seem to, you know, give you a sense of he's a strong man and he gets stuff done. So I think looking at, I think we all knew how New Hampshire was going to go. Um, or I think, the, of course, the way in which it's going to go for that this year will be, he will be the candidate naturally. Um, and I think he's most likely to win. I think, you know, that probability I saw on spread betting was twos, two to one that he wins. And I think we're modelling for that scenario.
1: Yeah, somewhat anecdotal what you're talking about, but you're the second person on Real Vision to talk about this as a a probable outcome and it's clearly affecting how you're investing. So uh, don't always do the political thing here on Real Vision, but for your next trade, it's kind of inevitable to talk about politics. And this idea is around Venezuelan sovereign debt. I have to say, this one really made me raise my eyebrows when you and I were talking, preparing for this, because there are so many factors at play here. I mean, there was just a a UK vessel sent. uh, I think a lot of folks with everything happening in the Middle East uh, really didn't uh, keep track of a lot of this, but a UK vessel sent because of border and, and disputes over oil between Venezuela and Guyana. This is a country that I've spent a lot of time covering in my career. So, I was surprised just to set the, the stage for this. It's sometimes difficult to, to trade uh, Venezuelan sovereign debt, or invest rather. Uh, so, Nick recommends the FPP Sovereign Recovery Fund. But wow, set, set the stage here for this, I because I this, this I surprised I, I, I'm, gonna,
2: I, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to ask you a few questions, because I right. do know that you're actually famous in Venezuela.
1: Yeah, well, I I got the wrath of uh, Hugo Chavez when I was covering him <laughs> diligently, journalistically, and sometimes when you do your job well, you get uh, called out by name by uh, Mr. Chavez. But he's but uh, not, doing, I'll, not I'll, calling I'll, I'll, out my name anymore.
2: <laughs> well, look, the, the the situation with Venezuela for us was back in 2021. We started looking at uh, some some stress sovereign names, and uh, you know Cuba was trading it. Eight cents and Lebanon was trading at eleven cents, and here was you know Venezuela trading at five cents. And so I thought, well, you know what I know about Venezuela is that it has more sort of oil and gas than Mexico and the US combined. It's got bauxite, it's got gold. You know we can drill into the number now that we now have of uh, barrel reserves uh, and oil, and it's uh, almost close to sort of Atari numbers of gas fields, and yet. It had gone through this situation where after the collapse of oil prices in 2014, and this is obviously post-Chavez, you know, Maduro had become a lot more authoritarian. And we saw this massive exodus on the news of Venezuelans leaving. We saw uh, people hungry. We had a terrible sort of political climate. And And the country sort of descended into this situation of sham elections. And then ultimately it led to sanctions on the country. Um, uh, by uh, Donald Trump, and the the, the the feeling was that this was a Marxist country, and I think to, in, inherently, I think there's still a view that it is. I mean, I know since 2006, three Russian bombers with nuclear capability have flown over Venezuela. Um, they didn't uh, vote, they abstained in the vote the UN on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and you'd had this sort of like US coming in and they'd supported a. a Bidog, Guido, who had been this sort of like puppet in their name, but Maduro was still seen as the strong man. But we began to think about this and we started to think about, well, what's our downside? If, if, if the bonds are at five cents and Lebanon that owns nothing is at 11 cents, well, and they're dollarized assets, this looks interesting. So we started to really begin to map the, 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 the country. And when you look at where it sits geographically, you know, it's not far down from the Gulf of the Caribbean. The, the crude, that it, uh, the oil that it produces is, is is quite a, a heavy crude that effectively has to be distilled, but the distillation facilities are up in Florida and Florida Keys. And then the war happened, uh, the Ukrainian war, and suddenly we begin to start seeing the situation where uh, the world is looking for new sources of oil away from conventional sources. And obviously we have a very uneasy relationship between the Middle East and Biden. Now, if you're Biden, what are your options? You could go to the sort of theocratic Iran, no. Or you could go down the road to your sort of like neighbours where you have 600,000 Venezuelans who have already come into your country anyway and start to think about a sort of detente. And so what's happened has been, driven by the oil price, there has been a rapprochement that's taken place um, uh, in the last couple of years, which effectively was articulated on the 18th of October last year with the suspension of sanctions. And it's probably just worth
1: bringing up that chart now because it reflects exactly what you're talking about. Continue, Nick.
2: Yeah, sorry. So, so the, the, the country defaulted, the, the, the bonds are traded down, and then the sanctions came on top. And now we're in a situation where, you know, the, 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 the sanctions have, have been suspended. And what does that mean? Well, the sanctions were quite a tax on U.S. people anyway, because there's a U.S. ban on secondary bond dealing. So all the big U.S. bond houses that owned uh, Venezuelan bonds were suspended from buying or selling. J.P. Morgan Emerging Market Index that holds these bonds just took them out of the index completely. So not only did you have the, the sanctions, the default, you had J.P. Morgan selling these bonds as well out of the index, which is why they got to five cents. And we began to start seeing, and I, I can say this with my hedge fund hat on, when you in a hedge fund and you own a, uh, an asset that's really priced in cents, it becomes a talking point for your investors. So normally by the end of the year, unless you're massively convicted will rally back, you get rid of it. So you began to start seeing people just dumping their positions in in Venezuela because they felt that this was never going to end. And now we're in a situation where US investors can buy it again. Now, we have some numbers, which um, we, we won't talk about today, but we effectively believe that Venezuela will recover rather than need to restructure. Now, previously, when you have distressed countries who have to restructure, they have to go to the Paris Club, the IMF. Um, Here, you have a very, very rich country. And we actually work out that if they do one and a half million barrels of oil this year, up from 700,000, that effectively computes at about 130 cents in the dollar. Now, they're trading at 21 at the moment. Now, that for me, again, is the kind of asymmetry I like, because I can sort of understand that even if Trump does get into the White House as we believe he will do. Again, he needs cheap oil and gas. And you have your neighbours down the road. And there's another thing as well about repatriation of, of, of folk, which is, you know, Venezuelans probably want to go back, to be perfectly honest. You know, it is a, a socially demo- historically, a socially democratic country. There's elections that take place uh, this year. Now, the opposition party is a lady called uh, uh, Marina Machado. Whether she gets elected or not, you know, we're beginning to stay, take proper stabs at democracy within this country. If you go to Caracas now, it's very, very similar to Moscow in 91. It's casinos, Ferrari garages, it has a sort of like a, a frontier town element of it as money returns. Chevron are there, Repsol are there, Shell are there. So we're beginning to start seeing, you know, a reopening of this country. Now, if they do, as I say, begin to start producing oil, they won't need to restructure their debt. Now we reckon that par plus accrued, so par being a hundred accrued interest on these bonds is 60. That's 160. You know, so it comes back to this idea of asymmetry. You know that what's my downside in dollarized assets? Everything that you're
1: saying rings true for me, both journalistically and anecdotally. I have you know, a lot of close contacts, even people still in Caracas. I know you know things are getting back to normal as normal as they could be in in this time span. But the the thing that I'm trying to think about here is, well, the sanctions have already been lifted. So is is are, are you?
2: What's the next catalyst? That's a great point. They've been suspended. They've been suspended and they come to an end on April the 18th. And we believe, with very high probability, that they'll be extended again. So we believe that what's happening is, is, as I say, this rapprochement, but it's a, it's a backwards and forwards. I mean, Maduro has done some crazy things. As you talked about, the Esquibo um, land that sits between Guyana and Venezuela, which is incredibly not only very fertile, but is, is full of oil has been an arbitration point since the 19th century when the British ceded it to Guyana. So now we have a situation where we've got Maduro doing crazy things, but that seems to have taken a bit of a back burner I think he's realised his unpopularity with this. Now, whether he wins free and fair elections and comes back into power, you know, there is still this issue that the US need to keep Venezuela close and away from any Marxist influences and to keep that oil for themselves. So, so really,
1: what you're saying is kind of, in spite of whatever happens in Venezuela, the fact that America is going to be so desperate for for oil is, or is going to continue to be even more so, is really overrides whatever happens, whether it's really free or really fair elections there.
2: Again, okay, you've done it in a nutshell. Absolutely right, Simon.
1: And I'm just wondering, any type of targets you have? We had that chart up. Yeah, I mean, I I I,
2: I, 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 I think let, let's let's be... Let's be conservative, I think. So let's have a base assumption of a million barrels a day, I think, and maybe some sort of restructuring, some haircut on the bonds. I think, you know, 75, 80, so four times money.
1: And what would make you change your mind? I'm sure
2: oh Diana, <laughs> this, even though bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it'd be something bonkers. I think it would be, um, I think it'd probably, and I, and, I, and I have another view on Russia. I don't think I'll come back to the fold, but it'll be, if Russia come back to the fold and um, because I think you know if you hadn't had the Russian Ukraine war and the uh, the Arab uh, uh, or the Arab situation as well as it is at the moment, it all would probably be $10, $15 a barrel. You know, we're not shy of it globally. But I think because of the geopolitical tension, because of the logistical issues, because of the 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 the, the way in which the we're moving into we're polarizing as a world. I think, I think it would almost have to be a, a, a welcome breakout of peace, which would probably change my thesis on Venezuela. But the country's growing at 10 to 15%. It has a huge amount of agricultural land, it has a huge amount of mining. As I said, it's got bauxite, gold, it has a huge number of other assets. So, really, it should be a recovery plan itself. So, I, I, I'm quite comfortable in this trade.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, because like I said, I've anecdotally heard a lot. I still report quasi in Venezuela. And so it's the first time I've really heard investor sentiment start to match or catch up to what I've seen anecdotally, the casinos that you reference. I just want to go back to uranium for a bit. I think you're going to say you can't answer this. You might be restricted. Uh, but Dean Myers asking uh, his second question. Nick didn't cover ASP. Uh, isotopes but i know he likes it curious to hear his thoughts on aspi versus silics uh, and, and as enrichment plays
2: um i can't talk about it but no. i love enrichment i think um i think you know the way in which enrichment the process works is you have to convert the gas into a centrifuge the centrifuges that exist in the west now are limited uh, they require six years of capex i think we're going to start looking for next gen um, and a lot of that, I think, would be around laser excitation, um, which is a way in which you excite the isotopes to effectively move U 235 to two, U238. Um, there are some very interesting companies out there, um, but I can't make any comments on any of them at the moment. But I, I do think enrichment is part and parcel of our uranium thesis. and uh, that, that we've, we've written on uh, enrichment on our website, which, as I say, oceanwall.com, you're more than welcome to, to take our research. We, we don't charge anyone anything any anyone anything for anything, if that makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then lastly, a question also from the RV community coming in. This one from Jason uh, Kabuki: Is this the year that we all realize the world is going fully electric, and what does that mean in the markets for oil
2: and EV producers? I I don't think actually. I'm actually I I really like lithium carbonate. I really like the uh, Passat. In the north of Chile, I really like the Arazaro region of Argentina for lithium carbonate. But I actually feel as someone who has had an electric car um, and got rid of it, I had a massive issue with, um, rain, what do they call it, range anxiety or anxiety or something. Mm. But I had an issue with range on the car. Uh, I, the atrophy of the battery life was, was too quick for my liking. I think we're some way off that. But I think, you know, I think the, the future for that lies in China. I think it's coming. But in terms of the year we go electric, I think for me it's about energy rather than about um, anything else. And I start looking at some of the stuff that Sam Altman's doing in, in uranium and you understand the amounts of electricity that's going to be needed to power AI and you start believing that we're a, 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 there's, there's, there's going to be a, a big change here in terms of demand. Um, but I, I think the electric car, I think we're still... I think we're still a couple more years off really fine-tuning that.
1: Yeah, I don't I, don't I just say as a, an American living in the UK and because I go back and forth so often, the, the gap between the US and Europe for electric charging stations is actually quite big. The US is way ahead here. I should really say Tesla because it is just Tesla at the end of the day in the US. For, for the most part. And this has really been excellent. I think for anybody who's wanted to get into uranium or better understand uranium, this is a great starting point for them. So Nick Lawson, thank you very much for coming on Three Ideas, answering the questions from our community. Uh, we'll be keeping an eye on uranium as well as Venezuela and hope to have you back on the show soon.
2: Thank you, Samuel. Have
1: a great one.
0: Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache, but it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Finally, 2024 is a year when crypto investors can do their taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get a 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout.